Okay, we are in Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14. And we'll read the chapter. And then we'll take the first half of it today. Proverbs 14, verse 1. It says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. He who walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. In the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will protect them. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. A trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness utter lies. A scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none, but knowledge is easy to one who has understanding." Leave the presence of a fool, or you will not discern words of knowledge. The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. The heart knows its own bitterness, and the stranger does not share its joy. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Even in laughter the heart may be in pain. And the end of joy may be grief. The backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied with his. The naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his ways. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. The naive inherit foolishness, but the sensible are crowned with knowledge." The evil will bow down before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. He who despises his neighbor's sin, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Will they not go astray who devise evil? But kindness and truth will be with those who devise good. In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the folly of fools is foolishness. A truthful witness saves lives, but he who utters lies is treacherous. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may avoid the snares of death. In a multitude of people is a king's glory, but in the dearth of people is a prince's ruin. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. A tranquil heart is life to the body. But passion is rottenness to the bones. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. The wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. Wisdom rests in the heart of the one who has understanding, but in the hearts of fools it is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely. But his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you help us, Lord, to have discernment. Lord, that by discernment we may understand the difference, the contrast between good and evil. Lord, that we might hate the evil way and that we might walk in the paths of righteousness. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, again, we are here in the... These midsection of uh, mid the midsection of the book of Proverbs, these middle chapters, where the 
prophet is contrasting the way of the upright with the way of the wicked with these many statements or sayings that describe one in, typically in contrast to the other. So we continue there, and we'll do the ver- first 18 verses of this chapter today. So chapter 14, verse 1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. A wise woman is one who builds up her house, right? She's a benefit to the home. She is an industrious woman. She manages the home well. She keeps it in proper order. Also, the way that she raises her children. She raises them in virtue, with godliness, instilling these kinds of characters and traits within the children. She loves her husband. She does good to her husband. She does good to her children. And in doing all of these things, she builds up her household. It is a wholesome, a happy home in which to raise children in the fear of the Lord, in which there is delight and joy in the husband. They're being married to such a wonderful woman. And it is beneficial to many, many people, not only their own children and their own immediate family, but extended family, neighbors, the poor, strangers, whomever it is. The wise woman is the one building up her house. But the foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. Right? Isn't it very foolish to destroy your own house? To tear down your own home? And yet this is what the foolish woman does. She does it because of her laziness, right? Her neglect, her uh, not doing the things that she ought to do. She squanders her time, squanders her days away, watching TV, eating bonbons, right? Doing those kinds of things, not being industrious and working hard in order to make the home orderly, to make the home happy, to instill within the children those virtues and things that are necessary. Instead, the foolish woman, by her constant bickering and bitterness, many times overbearing in the way that she deals with the children, many times... uh, being uh, harsh and overbearing with her own husband, being a nag and complaining toward him all the time, it tears everyone down, right? And who wants to be in that kind of a home, right? When this is happening, then the children are going to be miserable. They're not going to want anything to do with her, with the home, with the things of God, if she proclaims or, or says that she is a Christian. So she ends up destroying her own household. But the children, they're not going to want to be around her when they get into adulthood. They're not going to want to bring their spouses and their grandchildren over to the home to be around such a miserable wretch of a person. So she's her own worst enemy, right? Because she's destroying her own household, squandering it through the type of lifestyle that she lives. Well, we shouldn't be like this. The godly women of the church should be wise and they ought to use the gifts, the time that God has given them, the influence to build up their house instead of tearing it down. 1 Timothy chapter 5 describes both of these. 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 to 15. says, A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Having a reputation of good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. That's the wise woman, right? The wise woman is described in this way. She has a reputation of good works. She brought up her children in the fear of the Lord. She shows hospitality to strangers. She washes the feet of the saints. She assists those who are in distress. She's devoted to every good work. Isn't that the wise woman? Well, she's going to build up her house and build up many others as well. 
then verse 11, but refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desire in regard to Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips, busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion to reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. There, these young ones who are idle, going house to house, gossips, busybodies, talking about things that they should not talk about, constantly causing strife, conflict, not only in their own home, but also in the homes of others, in the lives of others, tearing down their house and tearing down the houses of others as well. Well, we should not behave in that way. Verse 2, he who walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Here, the godly behavior, the holy conversations of the upright shows that he fears God. This is why he behaves the way that he does. Right? He fears God, and because he fears God, he walks in uprightness. He does those things that are pleasing to God. But the one who is devious in his ways despises God. He has no fear of God. He doesn't care what God says. He doesn't care what God thinks. And so he is devious in his ways, in the way that he lives, in the way that he acts. He has no fear of God. This is like Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2. He says to Moses, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should serve him, that I should listen to him, that I should do what he tells me? Moses is coming to Pharaoh telling him, this is what the Lord says. This is what he requires of you. And Pharaoh, who is devious, he despises God. He says, who is the Lord, right, that I should follow him and do what he says? And this is how many people are in this present life. They despise God. And therefore, they are devious in their ways. They don't obey God. Why would I obey God? He can't tell me what to do. Well, they got another thing coming, right? They got another thing coming one of these days when they stand before God. Number three, in the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will protect him. His mouth is a rod for his back, meaning that because of what comes out of his mouth, He's going to get a rod on his back. A foolish man sins with his mouth. He says very foolish things, things that get him in trouble, things that cause him to receive punishment, a severe beating, a rod for his back. So his own mouth is what condemns him, is what leads to his judgment and his punishment. But the lips of the wise will protect them. The wise man is the opposite. His lips, his words provide protection for him, protection from the day of judgment because his lips reflect the state of his soul, the state of his salvation, that he is a child of God. So his lips are a protection to him, not the ultimate protection. The ultimate protection is Jesus Christ. But the lips prove that he is a partaker of Christ because there's no way that a man can have lips like this if he is not being a partaker of Christ. And so they protect him in this kind of way. With our words, we will be condemned, right? We will be judged. And with our words, right, we will be declared righteous before God. 
Again, not on the basis of our words, but as the evidence or as the fruit of what is true of our hearts. Verse 4, where no oxen are, the manger is cleaned, but much revenue comes by strength of the ox. Where there is no oxen, the manger is clean. Right? This is one way to look at it. And a lazy person would look at it this way. The lazy man would say, well, if I, if I get an ox, then I'm going to have to clean the manger. You know, because they, you know, uh, do those things that oxen do and what all animals do. And there's mud and crud and all that kind of stuff there. And so you have to clean it out. And this is one of the chores, one of the responsibilities that comes with having oxen. Well, someone who is lazy will say, oh, I don't want an oxen because I don't want to have to do all this extra work. But what is the benefit of having an oxen? Well, that's the next part. Much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. Right? If what you're looking at is the work and you have a disdain for work, then you're not going to do it. But if you're looking at productivity, then you're going to say, well, yeah, sure, I may have more work and more responsibility with oxen, but I'm also going to have a much greater increase in revenue because I'm going to be able to accomplish much more work during my time using an oxen than if I'm out there doing it with my own hand. I'll be able to accomplish far more and have far more productivity with my land and increase my revenue and be a greater blessing to my family, have more that I can give to the poor, more to support the ministry of the things of God. Therefore, I want the oxen, even though it means I'm going to have to clean the manger because I will also increase my productivity and I'm also going to have more revenue. So the one man, the lazy man, looks at the extra work, but the diligent man looks at the extra benefit. And this is the way that we ought to be. We ought to look at it in that way and not shirk back from greater responsibility because it's going to have greater work. But rather, we need to see the benefit of those things and not be lazy, but be diligent in the way that we are. Being a productive person is not contrary to the things of God. It's not contrary to godliness to be a productive person, but rather it is in accordance with godliness to be productive in what we do. Aren't there many examples in the Bible of godly men and women who were very productive in the way that they lived their life? They were industrious, and, and God used them in great ways, such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What about Joseph? Wasn't Joseph a very productive and industrious man there in Egypt? This is what committed him to the people in so many ways. The woman of Proverbs 31 is an industrious woman, a hardworking woman. So a hardworking person who is productive, this is in accordance with godliness. But a lazy person who does nothing and produces nothing, that's not in accordance with godliness, but is evidence of worthlessness. Verse 5, a trustworthy witness will not lie, but a false witness utters lies. Right? Here, a trustworthy witness will not lie. And this is what we should be in every aspect of our life. We should be trustworthy. This in our daily conversation. If we're called to court to testify in a court of law, we should be a trustworthy witness. But also, if we are telling people about the things of God. Because when we're talking about the things of God with people, are we not giving a testimony, being a witness to the truthfulness of God, to what the Word of God says? So whenever we are talking with people, whether that be daily, in an informal setting, whether that be a formal setting, like the minister who is teaching the Word of God, or in the court of law, we should always desire to be truthful 
in our speech, to be a trustworthy witness, especially when we're handling the things of God, especially when we're talking about things that pertain to Scripture, to the character and nature of God, to the way of salvation. We must be trustworthy in what we say. In contrast to that, the false witness utters lies. A false witness is one who speaks deception. He speaks lies. He gives a false testimony to people concerning what is true. Now, he doesn't tell them this. He claims to be truthful, right? A false witness in the court of law, he will raise his hand. He'll put his hand on the Bible. He'll swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help him God. But then he gets up and he utters lies. Also, the false ministers, the false prophets, the false teachers, do they go around announcing to everyone that they're false, that they're sons of the devil, that they're going to lead you to hell? No, they say that they're true ministers of God. They say that they represent God accurately. But we have to judge everyone according to the word of God, according to the scriptures to determine whether they are truthful or whether they are false. Because if they are a false witness, then they're going to be uttering lies. And if you believe a lie, that's not good, right? Lies lead to hell. Right, Lies lead to sin and judgment and death and condemnation, and we don't want to come under those lies. Verse 6, a scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none, but knowledge is easy to the one who has understanding. A scoffer is one who scoffs at the word of God. This is what is the object of his scoffing and his ridicule. A scoffer seeks wisdom. Now, when it says he seeks wisdom, he doesn't seek true wisdom. He's not seeking the wisdom of God. But everyone says that they want wisdom. They want understanding. They want to know how things work. But because he scoffs at the word of God, all of his seeking of wisdom will end in vanity. He's going to seek it. He may even think that he has obtained it, but actually he has found no wisdom at all. This is the way it was with the Greeks. They loved wisdom. They loved a kind of wisdom. Now, they didn't love the wisdom of God. They loved the wisdom of man. They loved earthly, demonic, worldly wisdom. They loved their philosophers. They loved their deep thinkers. They loved these kinds of people and to sit around and talk about new things all the time. And they claimed to be very studious, to be lovers of wisdom. But they weren't really lovers of wisdom. They sought it in many ways, but they never obtained it because they did not seek it from the right source because they scoffed at the word of God. Acts 17, Acts chapter 17, verses 18 to Acts 17 and verse 18 says, And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be proclaiming a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. Then also verse 32 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. The resurrection of the dead. This is a chief article of our faith. Amen. The resurrection of the dead. Well, is the resurrection of the dead in accordance to the wisdom of God? Absolutely it is. But what do they do when they hear about it? They sneer. They're scoffing at this concept of the resurrection of the dead. So are they ever going to obtain true wisdom if they reject a chief article of our faith? No. This is what he means as long as they are scoffing. Greeks seek wisdom, but they never find it. They never find it because they will not seek it in the Word of God. Instead, they seek it according to their own whims, according to their own understanding, according to their own opinions and their own ideas. This in contrast to the wise men. Knowledge is easy to one who has understanding. One who has understanding of the will of God. A true understanding. He has the Spirit of God. He goes to the Word of God. He reads the Word of God and he gains knowledge very easily. Because whatever he reads in the Bible, he says, okay, that's what I'm going to believe. That's what I'm going to do. It says don't commit adultery. I'm not going to commit adultery. It says do not lie. I'm not going to lie. It's very easy for him to obtain knowledge. He doesn't have to sit around and think about this and ponder it and come up with these very complex uh, uh, you know, uh, books and writings in order to understand it. It's right there in the Bible. He just reads the Word of God. Because he submits to the wisdom of God found in the Word of God, it's very easy for him to obtain more and more and more understanding. The one who has, more will be given to him. He already has some understanding, He'll gain more of it. It's easy for him to get it because he's always going to the Bible and he believes whatever the Bible says. Verse 7, leave the presence of a fool or you will not discern words of knowledge. Right? Fools speak foolish things. They say foolish things. They repeat foolish ideas. Well, if you are in their presence long enough, then their ideas, their ideologies, their philosophies, the things that they're saying are going to begin to sway you. You're going to begin to adopt some of their principles, some of their ideologies, the philosophy of the fool. Because if a man repeats a lie enough times, what do people do? They start believing it, right? They do it. This is what's happening. This is the media, okay? The whole media, this is what it's built upon. Repeating lies over and over and over and over again. And if you just say it enough and loud enough, then everyone believes it and says, well, it must be true. They said it on CNN, right? And those people can never lie. Actually, they can never tell the truth. That's, that's the reality. This is the way it is. Well, if you are listening to fools all the time, then you're going to become just like them. That's why he says, leave the presence of a fool or you will not discern words of knowledge. You're not going to have any discernment if you are with them. Where are you going to gain discernment? In whose company? He who walks with the wise grows wise. We want to be around wise people who are going to teach us the word of God. That's why Psalm 1, which we sang this morning, says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He leaves the presence of fools and instead he delights in the law of the Lord. 
And he wants to be around other people who delight in the law of the Lord. And now he's going to gain in wisdom and in understanding. Verse 8. The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. The wisdom of the sensible, and the sensible is the righteous man, the wise man. Well, his wisdom is to understand his ways. A wise man, a godly man, he wants to look at his life and examine it in light of the word of God. This is what he wants. He wants to understand his ways not according to his own perceptions. He wants to understand it according to God's perception, according to what God says about it. So he's constantly looking at his way, the way that he lives, the way that he thinks, the way that he speaks, how he does all that he does, and he's examining it according to the word of God. He's testing it according to God's word. He wants to understand his ways from God's perspective. And if he sees something in his way, that does not conform to the word of God, then what will he do? He wants to get rid of it. He wants to change his ways so that his life conforms to the very word of God. This is what he does. He's honest in his own life. He's examining his own life. He's testing himself according to the word of God. But the foolish person doesn't do this. The foolishness of fools is his deceit. The fool does not want to view his life in light of the truth. He doesn't want the light to shine on his own life and expose his sin. Instead, he wants to believe lies. He wants to be convinced that darkness is light, that evil is good, that what is bitter is actually sweet. This is what he wants. He wants someone to lie to him and tell him everything's fine. The way that you're living is just fine. God loves you just the way you are. And this is his foolishness. It is his love of deception concerning his own life. He doesn't want to be honest about himself. Right? It's bad enough if we lie about another. But is it not the greatest form of deception to lie about yourself? To lie to yourself concerning your own life, to your own destruction. And this is what the foolish man does. He thinks everything is fine because he believes deceit. He believes that darkness is actually light, that evil is actually good and pleasing in the sight of God. He will not look at himself honestly according to the word of God. Verse 9, fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. A fool makes light of sin. He jokes about sin. He makes it into a subject of laughter and frivolity. Isn't this the way it commonly is? People mock and they laugh and they joke about things that they should be weeping about. They should be mourning over the judgment of God that is going to come upon them. Isn't that what it says in James? That let your laughter be turned to mourning, he says. Why are you laughing about this? Why do you think that this is a light, frivolous subject? Don't you understand that what you're doing is going to lead to the lake of fire. And yet this is what the fool does. He mocks at sin. He laughs about it. He thinks it's no big deal, that there is not going to be any day of judgment. Proverbs chapter 10, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 23. Doing wickedness is like sport to a fool, and so is wisdom to a man of understanding. 
Doing wickedness is like sport to him. It's fun for him. He loves it. He laughs about it. He gets his kicks out of doing that which is sinful. And so it is here. The fool mocks at his sin, other sin. He doesn't care. He doesn't see it in light of the word of God. But among the upright, there is goodwill. The upright, they want to have an honest approach to their life, to sin. And so they don't want to live in sin. They don't want to make light of sin. And this is why they want to overcome it. And the result is goodwill. Goodwill toward God and goodwill toward their fellow man. Verse 10. The heart knows its own bitterness. And a stranger does not share its joy. Right? Bitterness and joy. These things in their utmost depth are known only to the heart of the person. Though we may have some common experiences. Like, for example, if... uh, if we've lost a loved one and someone else loses a loved one, then we know what it's like to experience that, to go through that. But the depths of the bitterness that the person is experiencing in their own suffering and their own hardships, only they know that, right? Only they can truly understand what it is that they are going through. And this is the way it commonly is. Now, who is able to sympathize with us in these weaknesses, in these hardships and struggles? Only Christ, right? Christ knows what it is. He knows the bitterness of hardship and suffering, and this is why we should go to him, because he knows what we're going through in even a greater capacity than we know, and more than anyone else knows as well. So bitterness, uh, trials, troubles of life, things that are bitter and hard, it is difficult for other people to know the extent of pain but the man knows his own pain. If we go to 1 Samuel chapter 1, an example of bitterness, not in an evil way, but bitterness meaning here the, just the hardships of life. This is Hannah, who was unable to have children. And in verse 10, she greatly distressed prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She is greatly distressed because of her affliction, and she's weeping bitterly, praying to the Lord. Right, That's what she's she's going to the Lord, who understands all of her hardships, the distress, the affliction that she's going to, and this is the way that we ought to be as well. Right, As it is also with bitterness, so it also is with joy. The true depths of joy are known only to the heart of the person when they're experiencing these many things in life. Verse 11, the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Here, the contrast is between the righteous and the wicked in two regards. One, notice the wicked, he has a house. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, whereas the upright, they live only in a tent. And their tent is not going to be destroyed, but rather their tent is going to flourish. So here, on the outside, by appearances, it appears that the wicked will prosper, and it appears that the righteous will not flourish, right? That they will be the one, if you're looking at the two, who will be more prosperous? Who will flourish in a greater capacity you would think, well, the wicked, right? Because he has such a nice, stable, strong house. And the righteous man, he only has a tent. He's very poor. He has a very meager existence. But what does God do? He tears down the house 
of the wicked, and he builds up the house of the righteous. They flourish while the other one is destroyed. And this is what God does. He pulls the great reversal, and this all will take place. It can take place in this life, but ultimately it will take place in the life to come. Psalm 49, verse 11. Psalm 49, verse 11. It says, Their inner thought is that their houses are forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. Right? They believe, their inner thought is that their houses are forever. Their dwelling place will last for all generations. But man will not remain in this state. But they will perish just like all the beasts of the field. That in contrast with Psalm 92. Psalm 92 verses 12 to 14. Says the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. This is what will happen to the righteous, right? We have to see the outcome of the wicked and the righteous. Avoid the wicked and walk in paths of uprightness. Verse 12, there is a way which seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. A way that seems right to a man, according to his own wisdom and understanding, according to the wisdom of the world, according to the philosophies and the ideologies of this present age. Right? They say these things, and it seems right to them. It seems very good and reasonable to them. For them to say that, you know, uh, it's okay for two men to get married. That seems right. To a man, it seems right in our own culture and age. That doesn't seem right to me. But anyway, or to anyone who's looking sensibly at things, but for many people today, isn't that true? They say, yes, this seems right to us. This is good to us. And anyone who disagrees with that, they will ridicule you. They will scoff you. They will persecute you for disagreeing with that. But where will this ultimately end? It will end in the way of death. Because they are not trusting in the word of God. They are not determining what is good and right according to God's word, but they're doing it by their own perceptions, by their own wisdom and understanding. This is the arrogance of man. Man's arrogance is seen in that he believes he is wiser than God, that he is the fount of all wisdom and understanding, and he does not need God telling him what to do. His creator, the one who created him, the creature believes he has more wisdom than the Creator, and that the Creator has no right to tell us what to do. We can do it on our own, and this seems good and right to us. So why don't we just do it the way that we want to do it? And look, everything's working out fine for us. This is what they believe and what they think. But ultimately, what will happen? The way of death. They're going to find out, in the end, on the day of judgment, it will be a very hard experience for them. They're going to find out the hard way. They didn't know what they were talking about. They were completely wrong. They were filled with foolishness, and they should have listened to God and His Word. Romans chapter 1. 
Romans 1, in describing the sinfulness of man, this is the problem. Man does not believe the word of God. He will not submit to the authority of God. That is what it ultimately comes down to, is a rejection of God's authority and of God's wisdom, and a preferring of our own authority and of the wisdom that comes from man. Romans 1.22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the, immortal, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Then also verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They claim to be wise, but in reality they are fools. And this is the way it is in this present world. There are many wise men in this world. Many who proclaim to be wise. Actually, there's nearly 8 billion wise men on this earth. Because everyone thinks that they're wise. Everyone thinks that they are the fount of all wisdom and understanding. But there is only one fount of wisdom, and that is the Word of God. That is God, and it's found in His Word. And when we submit ourselves to God's Word, then we will have true wisdom, and then it will not end in our death, but in eternal life. But if we trust in our own wisdom, and in the wisdom of this world and men, it will result in the way of death. Verse 13. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain, and the end of joy may be grief. Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain. The end of joy may end in grief. Here, a person can be in a state of sin, and yet be laughing, be having a good time, and then all of a sudden, the judgment of God comes upon him, and what happens to his laughter and joy? it goes away. And all of a sudden, he's given pain and sorrow, and there's grief instead of laughter and joy. An example of this would be Daniel chapter 5. Daniel 5, when Belshazzar had his great feast, and they were drinking it up, having a rip-roaring good time, laughing, making sport. Then all of a sudden, his laughter turned to pain. His joy turned to grief in an instant. Daniel 5 verse 1, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Right? See, they're having a really good time. Drinking it up, laughing, praising. You know, it's uh, jovial, filled with frivolity, this type of, of thing that people do when they're all drinking and, and doing this kind of stuff. But then notice what happens in verse 5. Suddenly... The fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, 
and his knees began knocking together. And then verse 9, the king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Right? In an instant, what happened to their joy? To all their happiness, frivolity, their laughter, the good time that they were having. It went away immediately whenever the judgment of God came upon them, and it turned into grief and sorrow and bitterness of heart. Right? This when the judgment came. And this is what will happen. We, we pray that this happens in our life by the grace of God, that the joy of sin is replaced with bitterness over our sin, godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That's what we hope and pray that we experience in this life, that we get no more joy from sin, but that we get grief for sin and that we want to repent and do what's right in the sight of God. But whether or not it happens in this life or not, it will happen for all men on the day of judgment. The joy of sin will be replaced with grief and sorrow and hardship. Verse 14, the backslider in heart will have his fill of his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied with his. A backslider in heart. A backslider is an apostate. This is what we've been reading about in Hebrews chapter 3. This is the wilderness generation. They look like they made real progress. They look like they were moving forward, that they were pressing on. But as soon as they faced hardships, trials, tribulations, what happened to them? They went backwards, right? They backslid, they slid backwards, and so they fell from their former confidence. Well, those who are backsliders in heart, they will have their fill of their own ways. They will receive the judgment of God. This is, again, according to what we've been reading in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 3, right? They, they did not enter into God's rest because God gave them the fill of their own ways. You want to be a backslider in your heart? Okay, then you will not enter my rest. God swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. They could not enter because of their unbelief. They will have their fill of their own ways. But the good man will be satisfied with his. The good man is not a backslider. The good man, in terms of the example we've been using on Sunday mornings, the good men are Joshua and Caleb. The backsliders are everyone else. Well, they had their fill of their ways, the backsliders, which was they died in the wilderness. But what about Joshua and Caleb? They were satisfied as well in their ways. And what did theirs end in? They entered into the promised land. God preserved their life through the, through the time of the wilderness sojourning. And then they entered into the promised rest of God. That both on the earth and then ultimately the one in heaven. This is what was true of them. God will give to each man according to what he has done. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, there will be eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. He will give to each man according to what he has done. This is from Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Verse 15, the naive believes everything, but the simple, sensible man considers his steps. A naive person, he believes everything. Anyone who comes along and tells him something, he believes it. He believes it. He says, okay, this must be true. And then he acts upon these things. You know, like those people that see, uh, you know, like those infomercials that come on where they're selling you this, this knife can cut through 
a, a piece of pipe 10 inches thick. You know, you can cut through anything with this knife. And people see that and they go, wow, I've got to have one of those knives. It's only $49.99 plus shipping and handling. And then they buy it. And then what do they find out? It can't even cut through a piece of meat, right? It doesn't do you any good at all. All it's good for is cutting through butter. But he believes it because they said, oh, it must be true, right? I, I saw it. They said it on television. It's on the internet. Everything on the internet is true. This is how a naive person lives and operates in this life. He believes anything. Anyone who proclaims himself to be a teacher of God. I'm a pastor. He has a, a big church. There's a lot of people that go to it. He must be true. He must be legitimate. And this is what he's saying. This is what he's saying about God, about salvation, about the way that I should live. So I'm going to believe him because the naive man, he believes everything, right? We're not supposed to be like this. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, it says that we are to reach maturity so that we're not like infants tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine. We cannot be naive children who believe whatever doctrine someone who is a self-proclaimed teacher and theologian proclaims to be, right? We should not be like that. We cannot be naive. This is also, as it says in Romans 16, 18, that false teachers, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Smooth talk and flattery, and these are used by them to deceive naive people into believing lies and instead of believing the truth. Now, the contrast to this in verse 15 is the sensible man who considers his steps. The sensible man or the wise man, the prudent man, right? He is not like this. Rather, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, he tests the spirits to see whether they are from God. And he tests all things according to what? To the word of God. He's sensible. He knows that not every spirit is from God. He knows that many false prophets have gone out into the world. He knows that there are many trials and tribulations, that there are serpents in the way. And so he is a sensible man. He has a sober mind. And he knows that this is true. He knows that he can't trust everyone. So he's going to test things. Test things by the word of God. This is what the sensible man does, and this is the way that we should be as well. He considers his steps. 16, a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. The wise man is cautious. He's cautious concerning his steps, concerning the way that he lives. He fears God. He knows about judgment. He knows about hell. He doesn't want to experience those things, so he's cautious in the way that he lives. He looks at situations. He discerns things rightly. He knows the difference between good and evil. And then when he sees an evil path, he turns away from it. He says, I'm not going to go there. I know where that ends. This is like we read earlier in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 7, when it talks about the adulterous woman. The cautious man knows that her house, where does her house lead to? It leads to hell. And because he's cautious, he says, I don't want to go anywhere near her. I don't want to be even in the same vicinity as her house. He turns away from evil because he does not want to fall into the judgment of God. But a fool is arrogant and careless. He's an arrogant man because he doesn't believe or trust the word of God. 
He's a careless man because he does not take care of his soul. He doesn't take care to consider these things and to do what is good and right in the sight of God. Verse 17, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. A quick-tempered man, he acts foolishly. A person who has a quick temper, whose temper flies off easily, he's going to act very foolishly. He's going to say things and do things that he would not do if he was in a sound mind, in a sober mind. But because he has no control over his anger, over his passions, when those things are aroused, he begins to spout out things and spew out things that he would not normally say if he was in a composed state. And this is why we must be very, very careful with anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When men become angry, they typically commit many sins, right? It's very hard for a man to have righteous anger. Now, it can happen from time to time, but typically when someone becomes angry, it's because of some personal offense. And then when anger is there, it immediately, it wells up in their temper, and then they begin to spew out things, even cursing at other people that they wouldn't, their own children, their wife, or the wife to the husband or to the children, acting like a fool, you know, ranting and raving this way and that way. And then afterwards, they, they, they feel horrible because they look like an idiot. And then they have to go back and apologize and do all the which would be good if they do. Sometimes they don't because they have too much pride to ever admit any fault. But a quick-tempered man, he's going to act very foolishly. He's going to do many things like this. But what's even worse than someone who's quick-tempered? That's the next part of 17. A man of evil devices is hated. Someone who does evil devices, he's not the quick-tempered man. He's one who doesn't spout out in quick anger, right? He doesn't act immediately, but he holds a grudge. He bears a grudge. He conceals his anger. He doesn't let on that he's upset. He hides it in this way, but then he begins to plot evil in his mind, and then eventually he's going to act upon it. And this person is far more insidious than the quick-tempered man. The quick-tempered man is like a man of passion. It's like a crime of passion. He does it in the moment, but it's contrary to what he truly wants to do or what he normally would do when he's composed. But a person of this other sort is like premeditated. He's calculated. He's meticulous. He is storing all these things up, holding them back, keeping them for the right moment. And then when that moment comes then he's going to set the trap. And it's going to be evil devices that are going to come about. And the result is people hate those kinds of people. Right? It doesn't, it's not endearing to anyone for someone to behave and to act in that way. Then lastly, verse 18. The naive inherit foolishness, but the sensible are crowned with knowledge. The naive inherit foolishness. A naive person who believes anything, according to what we saw earlier, he will inherit his reward, his inheritance in the life to come will be foolishness. He will be exposed for all time as an utter fool because he did not believe the word of God. Job chapter 11. Job 11 and verse 12. says... An idiot will become intelligent 
when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. This is the way it is. The idiot will become intelligent as soon as a donkey is born a man. And this is what he is. He is like a donkey, like a wild donkey roaming to and fro, making a complete, utter fool of himself. And he will inherit according to what he is. But the sensible or the wise man, he's crowned with knowledge. Knowledge. He has the knowledge of God. And this knowledge is a crown of glory upon him. Because his knowledge of the nature of God, the way of salvation, the will of God, how to live a godly life, this is his glory and his honor. And he will inherit the kingdom of God because of his faith in the truths of the gospel. He believes the gospel. He believes in Christ. Therefore, instead of inheriting foolishness, he will be crowned with glory and honor. And isn't this what is promised to all of those who long for the appearing of Christ? A crown of righteousness that will be given to the children of God. So may that be true of us. So may we not be the naive one who believes anything and who inherits foolishness, but rather be sensible, be prudent, be uh, as, as, in, as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, and then may we be crowned with glory and honor. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we do ask that this wisdom that we need, Lord, that you would give it to us. Lord, we see that obtaining your wisdom, Lord, it necessitates humility. Lord, for how will we ever come to you for true wisdom if we first do not consider the fact that we are fools, that we are naive, that we are simple? Lord, that we have no knowledge or no understanding apart from you. So, Lord, may you convince us that, Lord, our own way that seems right in our own eyes is completely worthless and useless. Lord, that it will only lead to death and destruction. Lord, will you convince us that the wisdoms, Lord, that are spouted out by this world, Lord, the many philosophies and ideologies, the false religions, Lord, so many things telling us what we should believe, Lord, how we should live, Lord, about the way of salvation, the life to come. Lord, all of these things proclaiming to us, Lord, things that are right in their own eyes. But Lord, we know that those things will end in death. So Lord, convince us and Lord, show us, prove to us over and over again that the wisdom of this world, Lord, the wisdom that comes from our own flesh is completely useless. And the only wisdom that matters and is worthy of anything is the wisdom of God found in the person of Christ. And Lord, that has been recorded to us in your holy word. And Lord, may we live according to your word. And Lord, not according to this present world. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we go from here. Lord, that you would bless us this week. Lord, help us to walk with you, to do those things that are pleasing in your sight. And Lord, we pray that you bring us back again safely together on Wednesday. Lord, that we might be together again, encouraging one another, and that we might open up the very words of life. So be with us, Lord, and bless us in all things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.